there's a lot to worry about when you're planning a wedding. There are logistics that have to do with clothes, with flowers, with food, with all of those things. And one thing you don't want to have to worry about is your feminine care. And that's where Lola comes in. Lola is a female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners. They started their company with a simple and seemingly obvious idea. Women shouldn't have to compromise when it comes to feminine care products. I love that it's been founded by women for women. They offer pads and liners as well as non-applicator tampons for those looking for a more environmentally friendly option. Lola's products are 100% organic cotton with no added chemicals, fragrances, synthetics or dyes and they make your month a little bit easier. Their subscription is fully customizable so you can choose your mix of products, your perfect mix of absorbency, your number of boxes and frequency of delivery. And James, let me tell you, as a woman who menstruates and as a woman who uses Lola, Lola's totally changed my life. I'm not running off in the middle of the night to the corner store to get feminine care because this is coming straight to my door. And when Megan has Lola, she won't have to do that either. She's not going to have to leave Kensington to go off on the main street and try and find some tampons in the middle of the night. And because we love you, we've sorted 40% off your first order. Visit mylola.com and enter promo code MARRY when you subscribe. That's promo code MARRY at mylola.com for 40% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. You see like 20 bodies a day and you see these gruesome injuries. Mentally, I wasn't prepared for it. Emotionally, you don't know how to deal with it. Some of the cases that we got were um, really tough to see, and you can't ever erase it from your mind. There was a woman, I will never forget her, and I will never forget doing the autopsy on her, and I know how she died. Yeah, I sometimes have nightmares about some of the things that I saw, or sometimes, like right now, I'm just getting a little emotional. It's tough sometimes to think about it. I feel like this was like a morbid conversation, Tom, so I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. I got to be honest. I feel like this was like a really deep, very heavy conversation. One of my best friends in high school is a guy named Rich. And most people could never figure out why we were friends at all because he was the president of the student council, he was captain of the track team. Teachers and parents loved him, and he was a straight-A student. I played guitar in rock bands. I got caught smoking in the boys' room. Fathers consistently chased me away from their daughters, and I was the only Asian kid I knew that ever failed math. But the one thing I'll never forget about Rich was that he always wanted to be an astronaut. Like, for real. He had his whole plan set out. He was going to join the Air Force, he was going to become a pilot, and he was going to go to NASA. Me? I just wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. So one day in my senior year of high school, when I showed up late to class, Rich said, hey man, where you been? And I said, I joined the army. And Rich damn near shit himself. Everyone's got their own reasons for enlisting in the military. 
For Rich, he was running towards a dream. For some recruits, they're running away from a nightmare. I'm sure even you, Tom, heard of buddies in the military that were like, man, I had to get out of there. Artie Walker Petakotla falls firmly into that second category. I'm sure there probably was an easier way. (laughs) But the military was the path that I found. The army was her way of getting out of the war zone that was her home life. It was a really tough household to grow up in, for sure. And even though she never saw combat during her years in the U.S. Army, She came face-to-face with all the horrors that modern warfare can throw at you. She saw more death as a result of war than I did my entire tour in Iraq. While Artie was in the U.S. Army, she processed, quite literally, the deaths of thousands of people killed during the War on Terror. Oh, and then some dick called her a terrorist. I got home and I cried because I'm like, what the fuck, dude? This is Battle Scars, and I'm Tom Tran. I served in the U.S. Army, deployed to Iraq, and took a sniper's bullet to the back of my head my fourth day in country. It's been over a decade since that gunfight, and I've told that story hundreds of times. There's still things about my life in combat that I haven't shared with anyone. And in this show, I talk to other veterans of our recent wars, and maybe put into words some of those things that we've never said about those experiences. Cool. We getting, we're getting a thumbs up. We're getting a thumbs up? I found out pretty quickly that Artie and I have a lot in common. First of all, both of us were soldiers that happened to swear like sailors. Can I swear? Yes, please. <laughs> For sure. Secondly, she doesn't back down from a fight. Even when she was pregnant. I give him this death stare like, don't you fucking start because I am pissed. And finally, as the daughter of traditional Indian parents... She knows the true weight of parental disapproval. I would like to start by playing this little game. I play this game with other Asian Americans <laughs> called Whose Parents Are More Disappointed oh, in dear. You, Yours or Mine. I think I win the game like hands down. Not only did I quit med school, I joined the military oh. and I got married when I was 21 and had a baby. So, yeah, I, like, totally win that game, hands down. I tell fart jokes for a living. (laughs) My older brother is a chemical engineer. My older sister is a federal agent. My younger sister builds rockets for the government. Oh, so you're the child that they're most disappointed in. There's no Vietnamese word for comedian, so my father just tells people I'm a clown. Oh, my um, God. Because he doesn't know what to tell people. So (laughs) you started in medical school and then left and then joined the army? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a ton of people in the military that join to escape situations, right? I had a bunch of buddies that like joined to escape the really crazy neighborhoods that they grew up in and because there wasn't a way out. And for me, the military was my way out. You know, I'm a survivor of domestic violence at the hands of my parents. My parents shipped my sister and I, I have a twin sister, and they shipped us off to India to start med school. And then when we turned 18, we went to the U.S. Embassy and said that we're destitutes being held in a foreign country and they shipped us back home and then we were like okay we're back in the u.s but we don't have a job and we want to go to college how is that going to work and the military was really the only solution that we could think of so that's how that happened so your family 
sent you back to India to go to school? Yeah, I, I was born and brought up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And okay. I did my entire high school here. And then when we were 12 years old, we knew that that was the plan because, you know. That's what Asian parents do. Yes. Like you have to go back to your country and like be surrounded by your culture. And and obviously the best education that you're going to get is in India. You know, the question growing up wasn't, so what do you want to be when you grow up? The question in my house was, so what kind of doctor do you want to be? And it was like, oh, my gosh, look at all the choices that there are in terms of the kind of doctor you wanted to be. Yeah, I had three options growing up. Doctor, lawyer, or lawyering doctor. Like there was <laughs> there's comedian and joining the army were not in there. No. So I'm, I'm interested in this, especially because you're first generation American. Your parents came to the United States. Yeah. You were born in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yep. And then you went back to India for medical school. And it was a cultural thing. It was completely a cultural thing. I think my parents, you know, the reason that domestic violence happened, and I haven't really forgiven them for it, but there's a real fear when you come over here that you're going to lose the culture that you grew up in and your children aren't going to know where they come from or where you came from. Like, hey, we want to make sure that they know what it means to be Indian, whatever that is. I mean, I grew up also first-generation American. My, my parents came to the United States in 1980. I was one year old when my parents came here. Like, yeah. I, I used to joke that my father escaped from a prisoner of war camp and that that night I was conceived because why not? <laughs> and then I came to the United States and I grew up with the same kind of, I called it discipline. I grew up with white kids who, when they were quote-unquote disciplined, they got grounded. They got their Nintendo taken away. Yeah. When I got caught smoking in the seventh grade at a Catholic school, my father beat me with an inch of my life. Yeah. It's a thing I'll not forget. Yep. He would throw dry rice in a corner and make me kneel on the rice wearing shorts. And yeah. that was after he spanked the crap out of me. Yeah. I, I grew up in this Polish neighborhood where it was mostly white kids. There's me. When they talked about the Asian kid, they were talking literally about me because I was the only one. Yeah. And then uh, the black kid was my friend Tyshawn. And we would hear the stories of our white friends being punished. And uh, my dad hit me with a belt and Tyshawn's dad hit him with a spatula. And then I was like, well, my dad hit me with a frying pan. It was, <laughs> it just became this like insane thing. And I remember my white friends going, wow, why are you guys still there? Like, what are you? Yeah. What are you doing? I mean, it was you and your sister who were being. It was was me and my sister. I also grew up with two brothers, but and they got beat up, too. But my sister and I were the ones that really got the short end of the stick, so to speak. And it was everything from grades to what we were wearing in school to if we were ever seen talking to any boys. It was everything. If we got a B, why didn't we get an A? And you get beat up over that. And. I remember it got so bad that in 12th grade, I lied to the principal and said that my dad had kind of beaten me on the knee when, in fact, the previous day he had he had this orange stick. My dad had this bright orange stick, and you knew that when he got that stick out that there was some shit that was about to be thrown down. And he used to just hit us with a stick so much that there were these welts that used to form on our butt. And it used to get so painful that you couldn't sit down in class. And I just got so sick of it one day that I told the principal, like, hey, my dad beat me on the knee or he kicked me. And there was this bruise from, like, soccer or something or gym. And she 
called CPS, and then we, my sister and I were taken away for a day. And then there was this fake judge that, you know, had a hearing the next day of whether we were going to be taken out of the homes. And my parents, being a physician and a professor, were like, why would we beat our kids when all we do is help people? Hmm. And of course, the judge was like, oh, yeah, you sound like great parents. Yeah. And after that, the beatings didn't happen as often because I think my parents got the clue like, hey, maybe we shouldn't fuck around with these girls because they're not, they're not like the subservient Indian girls that are just going to take kind of whatever you throw at them. James, there is a lot to worry about when you're planning a wedding. There are logistics that have to do with clothes, with flowers, with food, with all of those things. And one thing you don't want to have to worry about is your feminine care. And that's where Lola comes in. Lola is a female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners. They started their company with a simple and seemingly obvious idea. Women shouldn't have to compromise when it comes to feminine care products. I love that it's been founded by women for women. They offer pads and liners as well as non-applicator tampons for those looking for a more environmentally friendly option. Lola's products are 100% organic cotton with no added chemicals, fragrances, synthetics or dyes and they make your month a little bit easier. Their subscription is fully customizable so you can choose your mix of products, your perfect mix of absorbency, your number of boxes and frequency of delivery. And James, let me tell you, as a woman who menstruates and as a woman who uses Lola, Lola's totally changed my life. I'm not running off in the middle of the night to the corner store to get feminine care because this is coming straight to my door. And when Megan has Lola, she won't have to do that either. She's not going to have to leave Kensington to go off on the main street and try and find some tampons in the middle of the night. And because we love you, we've sorted 40% off your first order. Visit mylola.com and enter promo code MARRY when you subscribe. That's promo code MARRY at mylola.com for 40% off your first order. Now, while I'd advise you to not mess with Artie under any circumstances, it's also fair to say that as a young recruit being taught to kill, she was probably more of a danger to herself than to the enemy. I remember that whole grenade throwing thing and I didn't throw mine far enough and the drill sergeant was like, what the fuck did you just do? And he like, <laughs> he like jumped down on me because we had dirt flying up. And he's like, what the hell is wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know how to throw this thing. <laughs> Artie made it through basic training and fortunately they didn't give her a rifle. Instead, she worked at a medical lab. It's basically the person that takes tissue samples. Say if you get like a you know, a mole that has to be removed and checked for cancer. And the doctor takes a sample and we get that tissue and we process it and we make slides of it and we stain the slides to see if there's cancer markers on any of those cells. And that's what I ended up doing. And it was an awesome job. But then part of that job after 9-11 was assisting in autopsies of anybody that died in 9-11 and in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. That was our deployment duty. We had to do everything from taking the bodies out of the body bags, undressing them, taking their personal effects out. So we actually saw some of the personal effects and we saw some of the letters that, you know, soldiers had. And it crushed you. Like I mentally I wasn't prepared for it. Emotionally, you don't know how to deal with it because even though you're not in the war, right, I'm not out there shooting at people and I'm not out there trying to save somebody's life. But 
you still see the effects of war and you see these kids dying that were at that time were younger than me. I mean, these are 19, 20 year old kids. And you see like 20 bodies a day and you see these gruesome injuries. And you're like, why the hell do I have to do an autopsy on this? We obviously know what this person died from. But, you know, you still got to take the toxicology samples and you got to, you know, do the the process. And I think the way that we dealt with it when we were there was just suck it up and drive on, you know, that military motto. And then I remember the first time that we talked about it as a group was when we went to Arlington. Like we took a a field trip and it was the weirdest thing because at Arlington, the women's group at Arlington had put together this portrait display of soldiers that had died in the Afghanistan war. And the most haunting thing was we could actually point at the faces of people that we had done autopsies on. And it was just haunting as fuck because you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, I processed that person and I processed that person. And these people are all in, all buried. I mean, shit, I still get nightmares about some of the stuff I saw when I was there. I mean, there were chaplains around there, but the chaplains just made jokes about the football game and they didn't really, I guess they didn't even know how to handle it sometimes. But it was just like, this is a job, do it go home, come back and do it again and repeat until everybody's back home to, to their families. You know, you mentioned you didn't deploy, you didn't see combat, but you doing your job witnessed the aftermath more so than combat line soldiers, you know, who, who see, see the aftermath after a battle and they may or may not, God willing, not see their friends getting taken down. Yeah. But regardless of what combat situation may have happened, you see the aftermath of all of them. Yep. Like literally thousands. Would you say thousands? Yeah. I think the total body count in just the years I was there was three to 4,000 from both the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Some of the cases that we got were um, really... um, tough to see like what happened to those people and you can't ever erase it from your mind there was a woman that came in a, um, a woman that died and um, I, I will never forget her and I will never forget you know doing the autopsy on her and I, I don't forget people's eyes sometimes there's a part of the toxicology sample where you take vitreous fluid out of somebody's eyes and I won't forget people's eyes. So, yeah, I sometimes have nightmares about um, some of the things that I saw. Or sometimes, like right now, I'm just getting a little emotional. I I tell people that I stopped drinking soda, and this is a legitimate thing. I stopped drinking soda when I, the first time I saw medics cleaning guts off a Humvee with a two liter of soda. Yeah. And... That's a thing that I will never forget. Yeah. And I mean, how harsh were the things that you had to see? You didn't see whole bodies coming back. In some cases we did. In some cases we saw burned bodies come back. Um, in some cases we saw bodies without heads. <laughs> the one thing that we always did every time a day ended was go to Burger King and eat. 
And we used to joke that, like, we just cut up a bunch of meat in there and here we are eating meat out here. And you had to go back to the the base and go to bed and hope hope that you could get through the night without waking up in a cold sweat or something. I honestly, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, just completely frank. I obviously still haven't dealt with all of it because it's really hard for me to even talk about it. But I think about it, I think this is the the bad thing that we do as veterans that we kind of say like, well, at least I'm lucky to be here. <laughs> and then we right. don't deal with the shit that we had to deal with. We don't actually go to the therapist and do the, the shit that we probably know we're supposed to do, but we just don't do it. We don't tell people our stories. We don't talk about the bodies that come back. And one of the reasons I agreed to do this show was because I am lucky enough that as a comedian, I literally get on stage every night and I tell, I tell a story about me getting shot in the head, but yeah, I mean, like you, like you said, you, you didn't go to combat, but I guarantee you saw more shit than I did way more. And the, the two or three instances that stick out in my mind, keep me awake. <laughs> Chris Rock has this joke about, you know, which one's better Coke or Pepsi pepsi because they paid him last you know what like i i can't even joke about soda (laughs) (laughs) you know from you know that one instance like i mentioned earlier Artie swears like my old first sergeant every time i showed up late and drunk to formation Don't judge me like you ain't never showed up late and drunk to nothing before. But even though she swears like a salty old soldier, to some eyes, she doesn't look like one. Some people don't see the color of her uniform. They only see the color of her skin. And then they think that they know her story. So I was eight months pregnant with my third baby, so my last baby. And I was walking down the street with my husband, and my husband is an immigrant from India. And he's fine as hell, but he looks like what Americans think a terrorist looks like. But he's he's really, really good looking. <laughs> I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> so we're walking down the street and I hear this guy that was sitting on his porch drinking a beer. And he's like, so what terrorist country are you from? And, you know, because I'm hormonal and pregnant and I was in the military. I was like, what the fuck did you just say? And my husband, because my husband thinks he is a comedian, starts laughing. Terrible. He starts laughing. And I just give him this look. I like I give him this death stare, like, don't you fucking start, because I am pissed. And and I was like, excuse me, what the fuck did you just say? And he this guy's like, so you heard me. Y'all look like terrorists, so what terrorist country are you from? And I was about to like go off on this dude with my big ass belly. And like like and my husband's like pulling me like because you know he's smarter than I am apparently and he's like pulling me he's like come on babe and I'm like no this motherfucker just like I was going off and I'm like and it I got home and I cried because I'm like what the fuck just happened like this dude just called me a terrorist and I actually put the damn uniform on like I actually served in this country's military and then I thought of everybody else that looks brown and looks like me and has been called terrorist or has been the victim of a hate crime that didn't serve. And I cried for that too, because mm-hmm. what the fuck, dude? I mean, 
being an American doesn't mean you look like a white person. Being an American means you look like any, any goddamn person that's walking the street. And that's the way I look at it, right? And to go through the military and then to still be called a terrorist, you're like, okay, did I serve a country that really respects me? Or am I always going to have to tell people my story before they accept me? Mm-hmm. And it's usually the people <laughs> that like talk about patriotism the loudest and they're like, you have to stand up and you have to salute and you have to do this. But they've never served. They've never signed their name on that dotted line that says, I am willing to put my life at risk for my country. They've never done that. But here they are like yelling about it. Shut up. The biggest thing that I've, I tell civilians about the military is that it's the most diverse institution in America, bar none. We've got people from all faith backgrounds. We've got transgender members. We've got gay, lesbian, whatever. We've got everybody in the military. And people are like, really? I didn't know. This is a problem. This is a problem that people don't know who's serving. And people think that the people that sign up for the military just are kind of the bottom of society, I think. And that's not that's not okay. In the beginning, I told you why my friend Rich joined the Air Force. I didn't tell you that Rich and I left for basic training on the same day. Rich, after years of dreaming of being an astronaut, and me, after realizing that I wasn't going to be playing on the Monsters of Rock stage, eventually he did most of the things that he set out to do. Didn't quite make it to NASA, though. I hear that's kind of tough. Despite that, Rich and Artie, and I, and some of you, are part of the 0.5% of the American population that is put on the uniform to serve our country. 0.5%. Half of 1%. So why did I do it? Why did I put on the uniform? My family came to America in 1980. Immigrants. Refugees, like all of us at some point in our histories. My family just did it a lot more recently. My father was a prisoner of war in Vietnam after Saigon fell. He gave up his whole life. He left his homeland so that we could have a better life in a new homeland. I've been in America since I was 13 months old. I wore its uniform. I fought its wars. I've literally bled on its flag sewn onto the right sleeve of my DCU. This is my country. This is Artie's country. This is Rich's country. This is all of our country. And this is Battle Scars. Battle Scars is a Panoply podcast produced by Ryan Dilley, Shara Morris, and AC Valdez. Our theme music is composed by Daniel Dondi. The artwork by Jesse Brown. Special thanks to Andy Bowers, Panoply's chief content officer. I'm your host, Tom Tran. If you like the show, review us or rate us or just tell someone about us. And if you didn't like it, well, I, I wouldn't let Artie know about it. What the fuck? 